Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Seven years ago, Jamie and I set out to answer a question. Can you integrate the worlds of therapy and performance so that they work together for the benefit of the client? We knew that if we could create something truly tangible that was inclusive instead of exclusive, it would allow you, the practitioner, to solve more problems, work with purpose instead of a cross-purpose, and in the end, you would earn more income by working smarter, not harder being fulfilled, and sought after for your solutions. After creating reconditioning and witnessing the change of so many professionals' lives and practices, we knew still there was one more ingredient we needed to make it a bulletproof process. For so many years, the brain and central nervous system were not clearly understood. There were a lot of theories and interesting practices, but the research just wasn't there to support the claims. But in the last 10 to 15 years, the world of neurology has come out of the laboratory into the world of real application. We knew this was the missing piece of our process, bringing the current practices of applied neurology into the empowering practice of reconditioning. Introducing Neuro Reconditioning, the R-Pro series, four steps, one mission, to make you the neuro reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. If you haven't started yet, it all starts out with our signature course, R1 Foundations. R1 is about learning the building blocks of assessing and improving functional movement through the lens of applied neurology. Maybe you've taken the first step, but that's a bit like being a freshman in a college. You've only just begun. R2 Designs empowers the process even further so you can assess and improve any human movement, understand the visual and vestibular system, and then integrate your work into performance programming and return to performance. Both of these courses are completely online experiences, so you can digest everything from the comfort of your home, hotel, plane, or office. But knowing that there is so much value in trying, doing, and living the experience with us by your side, our new R3 Collab is about you experiencing the full power of the process in a living lab. Troubleshooting your issues, fixing your problems in real time, and gaining real confidence in the process, as well as learning how the brain integrates and manages everything we do. Finally, our R4 mentorship is about exposing your knowledge, refining your approach, and learning through a powerful feedback process so you can be a reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information on all our course offerings, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out reconditioninghq.com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offering. If maximum strength, injury prevention, and performance enhancement are important to you, Isofit's all-new Maximum Strength Kit is an absolute must add addition to your arsenal. Requiring less than seven square feet of space, Isofit's cost-saving design provides over 2,000 pounds of resistance for millions of isometric-based strength exercise. Made from cold-rolled Canadian steel, Isofit's Maximum Strength Kit is the world's first performance product dedicated to maximizing isometric strength, peak isometric force, and maximum isometric endurance strength. Since 2015, Isofit strength products have proudly strengthened and stabilized athletes in the NFL, NBA, NLB, NHL, and UFC. Pre-sale pricing is on now. 
Order yours today at www.isofitmsk.ca. That's isofit with a PH. Remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark to save 15% on your purchase. Shipping February 2022. Matrix Fitness has been the longest standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Greg Lawler, the Vice President of Business Development, reached out to me over a year and a half ago to say that he felt we had a common vision for human performance, something bigger than just helping people physically perform better. Their mission aligns with my mission, the idea that by creating the fertile soil for everyone and anyone to start or continue their personal performance journey, we will be here to help you do it. Matrix is one of the biggest brands in fitness and performance equipment today, but they are more than that. They are about helping you reach higher, explore your possibilities, and stay in the game, whatever your chosen path. Whatever you need, whether that is to buy equipment, rent equipment, or seek consultation, or simply recognize the possibilities, Greg and his team at Matrix are here to help you. You can find them at teamupwithmatrix.com today. Everyone struggles with the challenges of life on a daily basis. You're not alone. But if you're like most people, you feel alone, even when you're in a great relationship or a good work environment, because it's so hard to honestly reflect on your insecurities and obstacles with the people that you love or serve. After all, everyone wants to present themselves as being on it, prepared, ready to meet the challenges of life head on. But you know that's not how you always feel inside. Do you sometimes feel as though just having someone to bounce your ideas off of would be something you needed? Maybe you wish you just had someone who would listen to you so you could vent without the fear of judgment. The LYM Life Lab is about real mentorship. It's about me listening to you, connecting, empathizing, realizing, and reflecting so you can make better decisions, create your own change, and live a life of fulfillment and joy. It's not about living the perfect life. It's about living a better life. One you design, craft, explore, and experience within a safe place of objective perspective and honesty but no judgment. In the coming weeks, I will be opening this program up to an exclusive group of people, people who want to see real change in their lives and are willing to work towards real growth. This isn't a program for everyone, but if you're up for the challenge, you'll want to pay close attention to how to be included in this powerful experience. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for how you can be an instigator of your own change. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Chris Matisse. Chris is a graduate of Penn State University and has spent 25 years in the health and wellness field as a practitioner and business developer coach. A former performance coach in Northern Virginia, he professional athletes for many years and consulted with several of the area's top businesses. He is currently a mindset and business development coach, an integral part of the Partners Program and Frontlines with Brian Grasso and Kerry Campbell. He is in the process of creating a new venture and bringing neurology to the personal training world with Matt Bush and Kathy Mock as a partner of Next Level Neuro. Over the course of his career, his life mission has changed from changing the numbers on the scale to giving the health 
world the tools to help humanity get to that next level of sustainable happiness, whether that's being pain-free, building the businesses of their dreams, or better relationships with themselves. More than anything else, he is the devoted father of three little ones. I'm happy to have him on the show today. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it, man. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm a oh, big thanks, fan. Brother. Thank big you, fan. brother. Well, you have uh, had an illustrious career. I know it's gone in a lot of different directions, and that's why I think it's going to be kind of fun for the listener to unpack a little bit because one of the things, one of the reasons why I do the podcast is, um, you know, I think in our industry, it can be, you know, it can chew a lot of people up in a lot oh, of different ways. Yeah. Uh, it demands a lot. We are, we are givers by nature. And mm-hmm. so we come to these revelational points in our life where we kind of recognize that. And I want to sort of unpack your process, but uh, to hearken back, you, you, you grew up in Virginia or where did you grow up? Exactly? You know what? That is a long question, but <laughs> No, it's true. I've lived, I've literally lived in almost 30 states in my life. Um, I was born in Arizona. Then two years later, my sister was born in Washington state. Then two years later, my brother was born in Connecticut. And then through all that, we've lived in multiple, multiple states. I've lived overseas. I, I have done most of my living young in Pennsylvania. Okay. What did you have? Military parents or something? No, or? my dad built cogeneration coal power plants all over the U.S. Okay. Um, and then I've I have lived in Virginia the longest stay mm-hmm. of my life. Okay. I think I I was burnt from <laughs> 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 travel, but um, it, I have been here the longest by far. Right mm-hmm. out of college, I've been I've been here. How did moving all the time shape you? And in, in, in when you look back now with the, the glasses you have on now, I'll tell you, this is, this is a Brian Grasso and Carrie Campbell where they came into my life and helped. I was, we moved so much. I had such a hard time with the ch- so much change. I just sh- learned to shut down. Mm. You know, I, I became a, a, a very introverted, shy person from so much change. But as I learned, I've learned who I am. I'm really not. Mm-hmm. I'm actually the opposite, but the, the trap, the change, the constant change, the, the, the different countries, the different schools, um, it, it, I appreciate it. Um, but I definitely, you know, had a hard time making friends, all that type of stuff that you really grow up with the same sort of kids your whole life. Wow. Um, so I was one of those few kids that was a transplant in high school. So I didn't know anyone. Mm. So that was, you know, it was a tough transition itself in, in coal region, Pennsylvania, where it's pretty hardcore. Wow. Yeah. What was your favorite stop on the journey? Where, where did you act when oh, you look man. back now as a kid? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I'm an Arizona boy through and through. Mm. I've, I always relate myself. That's where I'm from. Um, all my family's there. Okay. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, Kathy and Matt, Matt Bush and Kathy Mock live like literally less than two miles from my family. Wow, Just crazy. Um, so I have a lot of ties there. Hmm. Ties when, I don't know if you've ever done this now, but when you talk to your parents about all that moving and stuff, uh, or, or if you have, like, what, what are they, well, how were they affected by moving all the time or did, were they, and, my and mom how do they was, relate to that yeah. with you? My mom was really affected, I think. You know, they moved, we moved back to Connecticut because that's where my dad's location, where the headquarters was. Mm. Four times, five times, 
And she's like, this is it. <laughs> so uh, we went back and forth to Pennsylvania to Connecticut for two years. And then um, the final move was to Connecticut and they stayed there. Okay. And she said, we're not moving anymore. That's it. I'm done. The last <laughs> move was a retirement home in Pennsylvania near my sister. So it affected my mom a lot. My dad was, he liked it. You know, yeah. he really liked it. I just don't have that that gene or whatever he did right. to me. I don't, I don't need to move all the time. Anymore. <laughs> so, so you're staying put now. <laughs> I'm staying put. Yeah. So when you, when you look back at your childhood, did you ever sort of lie down on the grass and look up at the stars and wish to be something? Or was there ever something that you really uh, wanted great, you know, to be? Yeah. Um, you know, I was a, uh, a very high level athlete in Pennsylvania. So I was recruited for division one football and baseball. But baseball was always my first love, even though I was highly recruited for football at all D1 schools across the country as well. Um, but the smell of the grass, the spring, that's all I ever wanted. Um, and, uh, and to be a farmer, I think, to be honest with you, if I have to think about it, I always wanted to be a farmer. I don't know why. I, I had, maybe it has something to do with my early mornings or something. I don't know. But a farmer, yeah. Interesting. Believe it or not, yeah. Did you ever watch the movie Moneyball? I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, as, a, as a guy who played baseball at a high level, what did you think of that movie? You know, what, it, what did you think of that process in some sense? I think it's, it's super smart yeah. because all athletes have their areas where they're good and they're not good. Mm-hmm. And if you and with analytics, just like basketball and, you know, the vault and all the way they track analytics now, you just have certain places that, where you're really good in. And you're not really good in. You're really mm-hmm. good at in certain counts that you hit well in. You're really good against certain hitters um, as a pitcher. You throw better pitches at certain counts. It, there's so much to the the analytics that prove who you are that that movie really brought the truth forward as an athlete. Like if you could really as an athlete learn it for yourself and what you do really well, I think you'd become a better athlete just learning about yourself mm. and not trying to fight the analytics and prove the analytics wrong. But stay within yourself and learn that. I think it's the same way with when, when you and I look at, at health and fitness and what people are, are really good at. You know, they, they may love something, but because someone said it's not good for them, they may go do something that's not really pertinent to their somatotype or their, or their personality. And mm. Charles Poliquin really taught me that. Um, just on in certain types of training modalities and what rep seems you work better in. Uh, it, it was a really eye-opening for me when we look at analytics, what the data says, and who we are as people. <laughs> wow, cool. So you went to Penn State uh, to play baseball? I did. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. And so did you play there your, your, through the full process I of your education? I played the full process of my education. Um, we actually won the Big Ten. Wow. Um, which was pretty awesome. We started the, the year like 0-20, 0-20, 0-21. Yeah, we were the northern school that practiced indoors, and then you went away and played everyone outdoors in the south, which is the baseball mecca for college baseball, mm-hmm. and lost everything. But then we came back and won. We just went on a roll and won the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. We, so we were did, that, sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, <laughs> to finish that, we were the team sitting, because we had done so poorly in the beginning and done so well at the end, we were the team sitting at the uh, – the NCA uh, for March, the quote unquote March Madness for baseball, right. waiting to get picked for the tournament and didn't. 
Oh wow! You know, we were left out. I'll never forget that. Yeah. <laughs> but then the so, next year, they went to. They were one game away from the World Series for Penn wow. State, which is a huge achievement. But yeah. Wow. So when did you decide baseball was uh, not going to be something you did for longer than a, <laughs> a, your college career? When the college, when the professional recruiter sat me down and said, "Listen, I, I'll draft you, but you're just going to be a filler." Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, what I appreciate is that they're pretty upfront about that when they sit down with you. People think even if you're drafted in professional baseball, it's, there's a lot of money. Oh, it's not. <laughs> it's not a lot of money at all. <laughs> and uh, I had friends who'd been drafted and out quick. And they, none of them enjoyed the life. None of them. Mm. They all wanted out. Um, mm. You know, that's, that's, they draft you on potential or they draft you as a filler to fill the teams because there were so many, there's so many teams. Right. So they were honest with me. I was older at the time because um, I stayed a little longer. I was right before that niche in baseball where they had seventh inning relievers, eighth inning relievers, ninth. Like I would have been a classic sidearm lefty, which are unheard of in baseball. No one could hit me. But because I didn't throw 95 or et cetera, and, and there wasn't really specialist at that point, I, I just missed the window, I think, for that. Right. Yeah. So you were a pitcher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So what did, what did baseball teach you? How to deal with failure, man. Yeah. Well. I mean, baseball is the game of failure, right? I mean, you, you can practice as well as you can play as well as you can have a great game one day and then turn around and just lose it all the next, you know, if, if, if I was a betting man in professional baseball today and anyone listening, if anyone throws a no hitter, in professional baseball, bet on them to lose the next game. And we could get into the science of the nervous system and all that type of stuff. But if you look at the stats, it's the percentage of that pitcher winning the next game has to be under 5%. Wow. It must be fascinating actually now with what you're doing with neuroscience and mindset and everything that you've gotten into, which we'll, we'll play into later on in the podcast, but to look back in your baseball career and on the game, it must inform you quite significantly. Oh, it is. You know, what's really interesting. You asked that Scott, it just reminded me, um, Penn state had a, a full-time psychologist on staff and, um, his name was Dave Yukelson. I'll never forget. He was this um, little short guy. Great guy. He wrote um, the psychology of sports, oh, what it? but it had to do with mindset. Mm. But he, but he was a big, he was a big pro- proponent of that at the time. But baseball is certainly oh, a mindset-driven sport. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. don't carry it with you. Um, I mean, especially for hitters. Think about it. If you're a 300 hitter, you're good. You're you're successful 30 percent of the time. And that, and, and for pitching, it's, it's, it's even, it's even harder. I mean, you, you go into a game as a starter, you don't know, like you could walk two guys and be yanked. Yeah. Right? If you're, if you're a coach or you're a closer, like I was and started and you go into close the game and you walk the first guy you're in, you're yanked. Like there's so much you have to stay on top of yourself as an athlete. I think for that, which, and, and in football, the, the beauty of football, it's different. You just go hit someone. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so different. I remember watching the the book, the movie, I forget what it's called with Kevin Costner when he kind of uh, was a pitcher and he, and he had this moment where he always would clear, he called it clear the mechanism yes. and everything would go mm-hmm. quiet, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, w- I was just wondering as a pitcher, like, 
how how did you sort of especially as a closer because there's a lot of pressure in being a closer Mm -hmm. how would you sort of clear that mechanism and be focused center on what it was you were going to have to do next (laughs) i think this is where my dyslexia helps a lot scott um (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest with you and i can remember vividly some of the biggest games that i i closed and won i forgot that there'd be guys on base like bases loaded no outs or like you just don't think about it but if you think about the mindset behind that right you don't you're you're not tight you're not nervous you're just reacting Mm. right and i i can i can vividly remember like oh my god there were the bases were loaded there were no outs i just got out of that oh sweet (laughs) you know what i mean like like i can like i laugh about it now but it's so true right it's so true um because you as you know in athletics to be in the zone, you're not thinking about anything. Mm. Like it's just pure reaction. It's just going with the flow and getting into that zone. You know, Dave Eugleson was a big proponent of if you did really well in a game, whatever you did that game, especially if it was music or something you ate, to repeat it for the, the smell to the nervous system or the music. And mine was uh, uh, Pink Floyd's live Dark Side of the Moon album. I and it's not like I was a big Pink Floyd fan. I just happened to have that album. And I'm, I'm telling I can listen to it now and just, I can go to that moment of the release point and all that type of stuff. Wow. Feeling about do you it. ever, do you ever remember a point where you actually were in a deep flow state where you, everything was just, you were just turned on and yeah. throwing like nightmare pitching. Yeah. And as a yeah. pitcher, it really, you, you are in sync with the catcher and calling a game. Like there's no, you don't, you don't disagree with the pitch. You don't, you just move through it. Wow. Mm-hmm. I also remember cool. my first game was against Aaron Boone of the Yankees. He played for <laughs> USC at the time. And just so you know, Scott, the um, NASA is still tracking that ball in orbit currently. <laughs> <laughs> my first, I'll never forget. Like, you know, when they say, like, this is so true. Like, when you get that nervous, your sphincter tightens. It really does, Scott. Like, it really does. I'll never forget that. <laughs> I never told anyone till now that that is so true. It really does. Oh my God. I was a freshman. They're like, Hey, you're in. I was like, okay. All right. Never forget. That's awesome. Never forget. So when you put the, when you put the ball down um, and you, you've finished your degree, I guess in your, you're doing a degree in kinesiology or. Yes, or exactly. Okay. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. And so what, uh, uh, where are you going with your mind at that point? Like, obviously there's a focal stress around being an athlete and you're getting your schooling done. Uh, are you also saying, you know, I want to be like, in some ways you're probably, and, and I'd love to hear this, but you're probably thinking, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a baseball player. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this degree. I'm doing this degree. And then all of a sudden I'm not going to be a baseball player. I'm going to do this. So h- how does that yeah. transition happen for you? You know, at, at school, um, Penn State, they with their their training staff, you actually as an athlete could sign up for free and get trained one on one, and um, I just loved it. <laughs> to be honest with you, I loved it, um, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. If it wasn't um, to become a, a professional baseball player, I did um, attempt to become a coach, um, but at that time, as you know, there's no cell phones, you were faxing everything, everything was phone calls. So the, my couple opportunities didn't work out just because of uh, communication, you know, mm. in school. But um, right out of college, I, um, I was dating a girl here in DC and um, 
there was a, a private personal training company in DC and um, they, they agreed to bring me in and teach me. And that's how I started. It was literally mm-hmm. like uh, a very synchronistic aspect to my life that way. And so, and so you, you get into it and, and you fall in love with it and, and yeah. okay. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I just had a knack for building bi- personal training businesses and teaching and, and within a year I was already building businesses, gyms and stuff for them right away. So, wow. um, it was just something I just loved to do, but I loved the training aspect of it a lot. Okay. A lot. And who were some of your influencers in your, in your style or approach? Yeah. So, um, um I knew Charlie quite well, so, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear. Yeah. You... So, um, um, great Gary Gray has one of his, um, his teacher's name is Pat McCluskey. He mm-hmm. works for, he, he does a lot of work. Pat was my first mentor in the personal training world. And really, we, we had a really great close relationship as friends. And um, gosh, this was, Sky, this was like when PT on the net first came on board. Like mm-hmm. people who are new in the industry don't even know how really it started. But with PT on the net, and I remember Richard Boyd coming when he was starting, he flew from Australia and would like just visit gyms and tell them about PT on the net. And, you know, then Pat got involved. And then um, I, I was in, indoctrinated into the Agassi method via that way. So I learned a lot about posture and, and, and the body. And then from there, I was like when, when NASM was starting their trend as being the, the, team, the, the people to, to, spot, to um, certify people, that's where then I met uh, Greg Cook who is a Reebok master trainer, just starting teaching the FMS, mm-hmm. but not the FMS. Mm-hmm. And then we brought him in. So I've had, from the outset of all the people that have really become big in the industry, I was really at the start with all and had a lot of mentoring from a little bits of them. And then through that, where I met Brian Grasso, um, I also met Charles Poliquin at Meeting of the Minds in Keystone, which PT on the Net put on. Mm. And then that just kind of took me in a different trajectory that way. Mm. And so what did, what did you, what did you learn from Charlie? Cause Charlie could be a, a, an irascible character at times, oh. but he was also brilliant. Um, yeah. and so there was kind of this double-edged sword with him, but, yeah. uh, how did, how did he affect your, the way you looked at things and the way you did things? That's a great question. He was abrasive at times, as needless to say. Um, what I think Charlie did for the industry, um, there's a couple things. One, because of how um, type A he was, he kept analytics on everything he ever did. So he learned through what he did, but then looked at it and, and made scientific decisions based on that. And one of the things that he, I remember him saying specifically is like, if you look at Europe, China, Russia, all these countries that the, the Olympics are the sport, Right. They know based on how you are strength-wise, what sport you should do, mm. right? So, for instance, if you're if you can two and a half times your body weight in lat pull-ups, etc., like you are the bobsled pusher. Like they just knew it down to a science. I just really enjoyed how we looked at strength training as a scientific aspect of what to do, right. how to take. Um, certain uh, assessments that he had to at least give you a very close feeling and the right numerical ranges to say, okay, well, you're really more of a, a power athlete. You really should work more in here and only stay in 
a, a, a strength or an endurance aspect for short amounts of time. And right. then when you saw your numbers decrease by 30, 20%, now you need to switch. Like he put certain things around s- strength training that no one had done, at mm-hmm. least to my education. And then what he, what he did to the, in a good way for the industry and in a bad way at the same time, is he really brought supplements to the, to the forefront. And um, now he had analytics. He had a program that showed all these things. He's the one that really, I think, started that with the, the fitness realm and really started pushing that, as well as the paleo diet with with um, Rob Wolf, etc. But he really started that trend with those. And uh, you know, I was with that first group of twenty people mm. that that he had started that with. Um, you know, I. I'm not going to lie. A lot of his uh, teachings, I hated going up front with my shirt off though, because there are some big dudes in there and I, he would just tear me to shreds. But, um, uh, but now that I've learned the mindset behind all that kind of stuff, I'm much better about that. But um, mm-hmm. Charlie was a big influence just on the strength training portion and really how to build programming based on your muscle fiber type, based off the assessments that he had done for over thousands and thousands of athletes. Mm-hmm. And here's what it said. And I really appreciated that from him. Must have been an interesting, well, I, 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 when his passing came, was that a moment of pause for you? You know what? Um, I felt like the, the strength training world and the whole world paused like instantly. Like mm-hmm. my social media blew up, my phone blew up like instantly. When that happened, mm-hmm. it was, it was, it, it really sh- hit me more so how he passed with a, like a heart attack as healthy as he was, right? Supposedly, mm-hmm. but it just shows you that sometimes you just cannot run your genetics, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and then one, when his, one of his other really good friends, John Meadows passed away, um, you know, that was another one that I, you know, um, just not that I knew him, but I just knew of him through Charles and, and how well he spoke of him and stuff. So walk me through like the, you know, first 10, 15 years of your career, you're building gyms, you're built, you're getting into all this. When does, when do you start to see cracks in the foundation of what it is that you're doing in essence? Yeah. So, so I, I was building gyms. I was training personal trainers, um, for a company where we, we, we had a system to it. We, we team personal train. So it was a little different than a lot of places do. We did that for business reasons, right? It was easier to manage a business. But um, what I learned in the industry, which I'm sure you have learned yourself, is fitness professionals work as hard as chefs, if not harder, right? They make a lot of their money in the morning and they like to make a lot of it at night. Mm-hmm. And there's only so many clients to go around. And, you know, that's why the the big box gyms lose people all the time. They don't, can't pay them. Right. But mm-hmm. it's just a business. So they go and they, they go out in private and do those type of things. So I even saw that in a smaller commercial esque type of private scenario. Like you, it was a big learning experience for me, right? You can only make so much money, right? Like there's a truth to it, but right? I don't care how good you are, how long you've been there. Like the CEO should be able to say, listen, I can only pay so much for this position. Like you've just, you're amazing, but you've outgrown it. I recognize that myself. <laughs> and it was a hard breakup for me because we had started a women's, before boot camps were big, we did a, we franchised women's boot camps in the internet and killed it. Um, but it was, but you're still working so much, right? It just, I just wanted more. So I went out and started consulting on my own and doing some stuff. And then um, 
I uh, took the step in Scotty of the venture capital world with raising money and buying businesses for fitness and turning them around. And boy, I think I'd rather drill a hole in my foot again than do that. But um, <laughs> it was a lesson. It was a great lesson. Okay. For a lot of reasons. But so I, I went and found a business location, you know, location, location, location for business. It's, it's very important. Um, redid the business. Uh, built a, a cash physical therapy clinic, um, and and the what I would what you would I would tell your listeners is the Beverly Hills of the East Coast. Okay, to give you an idea, the the richest county in America is here. Wow. Um, the number one McDonald's is in that area. The number <laughs> one giant shopping center. It is the number one place for people to work and retire in in the same mm. area. So the, the money was there. It's not, money wasn't an issue. And then I had, um, I had recruited a doctor. It took me five years. I started their process five years. And um, he was coming on board, left his practice, was taking a year sabbatical to build this with me. And then um, when you're working with venture capital people in business, like they just want you, want you. And they just, so they wanted me to be a practitioner. They wanted me to build the business. They, and I just, you just, there's only so much you can take. So, um, I ended up leaving and, um, the, to answer your question, I know that was a long way. What was kind of the moment, right? It was that moment coupled with me starting to run another huge weight loss program for people. Right. And we, and by the way, I give like away 30 to 40 grand to winners because we had so much money. And I remember standing there and just talking to these people again. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I do this every year to the same people. Like it's, it's, we are failing as a, as a, as a profession. And I felt like it was my fault. Hmm. Well, subsequently at that time, because I was exiting from the business at the same time, Brian and Carrie had come into my life um, and in a very deep way. And I was doing some work for them, but he, he said something to me, Scotty, I'll never forget. And it was the simplest statement that I tell so many people now in the fitness industry. He, 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 we were on Zoom call and he said, Chris, he goes, just think about it. He goes, it's, it's not that the fact that someone needs to lose 30 pounds. He goes, you got to limit the reasons why they're already 30 pounds overweight. If you can't do that, they're always going to put the weight on like 22 years. And finally, someone said the right words to me. You know what I mean? It was in that moment. <laughs> That after learning all that stuff, I was just like, people will always be struggle, will always guilt themselves, will always feel shameful of who they are because they can't succeed in this one thing they want. But they can if they just understood it's not that they don't want it. It's not that they're not good enough. It's not that they, they don't have the tools or the, or the willpower, et cetera. It's because they have stories limiting them. And if they just mm -hmm. understand them, then it becomes so much easier for all the stuff that works because everyone knows an apple is healthier than a donut. Everyone knows they need to move, but there's reasons why they can't. And that was just such a big moment for me where I just, I made the huge transition quickly mm. because it, it just, I just couldn't do it anymore mm. in a way. You know, like I still have a couple people that I, I, I help, but um, that, that they are more business relationships as well. So, but that was a, that was a pivotal point for me. It was just like everything coincided together at that one moment at the same time like um 
sort of going back a bit, like where do you where do you meet? Uh, I I know you're divorced now, correct? Yes, correct. Uh-huh. And where do you meet your ex-wife? And then when do you guys start a family? And how does that all sort of yeah, percolate? Yeah, actually it all percolated big, at the same yeah, time. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So um, my my then wife was uh, an employee at the time. Um, mm-hmm. She uh, she had left the business to pursue some other stuff and. Um, my then C, my then business partner didn't like it um, because a because I was exiting at the same time and he just felt he was a little upset. So we went off and built a life, and then um, <clears throat> through the stress of that venture capital business, etc., um, the 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 convergence of <laughs> me leaving, right, the business finances, it just kind of all imploded. Mm. Now. Again, Brian and Carrie were there, so it was um, the universe spoke to me, right? Like I had two people on my side helping me through both ends and at the same time taking me up on this other end with them, and we just built that type of um, relationship um, through mm-hmm. it. And I think that formed certain business partnerships that we have today because of that at that time. Mm-hmm. For Beautiful. So how has – well – Talk about the beginnings of being a dad and then how that has changed with the mindset journey that you've gone through. Yeah, that's a great, that hat first being a dad is amazing. Right. But what I've noticed is um, when I see my kids do something I do, it, it really, it really changed my self-awareness around myself. Right. Um, my dad, gosh, so this is really deep stuff, Scotty. So I'm going to tell you some stuff. So <laughs> like my ex-wife at the time, she'd be like, why are you so mad? But I never was like, I, I, I think in my head a lot and I'm always there. So I'd always turn around and be like, what? After they, someone would be saying something to you like over and over again. And I'll never forget. I'm like talking to my daughter. She's 11. She turns to me and goes, what? And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. But here's what's killer. We were at my dad's place. And I was like, dad, dad. And he goes, what? And I'm like, oh, my God, that's where I got that from. Like, it was the generational <laughs> effects got it down. Like, but I got it, right? Like, I got it. And I remember telling my then ex-wife, I was like, you know, I'm really sorry. Like, I understand what you mean. Like, it was those type of scenarios that my kids started bringing out on me that I started seeing in myself that I was passing to them. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I really started working on uh, the mindset of them of um, being positive, um, being more self-aware of how they act. But more importantly, sitting them down in the moment and having them express what they are feeling. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me, are you angry? Are you sad? Like, what are you feeling? So especially my son can learn to express that as a male and not shove it down, right? It's, it's not having them run upstairs screaming at you because they're mad at you when, in fact, someone said they didn't want to be their friend at school today. Well, mm-hmm. son, wow, how do you feel about that, right? Like, I think that's made, it has made me such a better father sitting there and not <laughs> critiquing or yelling mm-hmm. at them to stop crying or whining or yelling and really mm-hmm. asking why and mm-hmm. just sitting with them and listening at the same time has been um, a gift for myself 
as well. Um, you know, my, my dad's not a big talker <laughs> at all. Um, we joke, we make bets at Christmas time, how many words he's going to say during the week when we're all together. Um, but I, I want my kids to be able to talk to me and express themselves. Um, because I definitely was someone who shoved it all in and dealt with it and pretended everything was great on the outside. And by the way, I thought that's the way we should have been right. Like that's that as a health professional at the time, I thought that was positive mindset, right? Like everything's great. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm great today. Right. And in truth, we don't, we don't as health professionals, especially personal trainers, strength coaches, we didn't have the opportunity or the ability to come into work hungover have an argument with our spouse or something and hide up behind a desk or a computer all day. We don't have that opportunity. People come to us to increase their health and be happy. So we need to project that to them. And if anything, listen to their stuff. Right. Yeah. So I, I definitely was um, guilty of that. And, uh, and I really worked hard on as a dad with my girls and my son, not to have that happen. Okay. It's interesting eh, to look at being parents now, our generation. I look back, you know, because we're kind of three generations post, um, you know, the depression and the war. And when you look at the depression and the war, because my mom's a depression baby, and, mm -hmm. you know, they come from that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I need a roof over my head. I need something mm -hmm. to eat, you know. And then they went to war. And when they came back, you look at the 50s and the 60s, and that was kind of this period of, when you look at the videos, when you look at the movies, when you look at the stories of that time, everybody was, hey, we're buying a house. Hey, we've got all the things, right? They've got yeah. the, the, that kind of life and the job and the career. And then it all kind of started to implode in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, our parents' generation started getting divorced and breaking up. And, and we were all kind of privy to that. You were privy to somebody who was working his tail off mm -hmm. and driving you around. And it seems like our generation came away from that sort of saying, um, I want something different, but not having the tools to understand what different was. Yeah. And then going through this, the stuff that you and I've gone through, through mindset is kind of this recognition that you have to sort of have your pulse on all of those elements, but fundamentally it's who you are as a human being inside and how healthy you are that matters most at the end. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so true. Like I look at my dad now who has retired extremely comfortably, like extremely I, you would think I grew up poor. Like, okay, now we had a roof over our head, like you said, but we, we did everything in the house. We, we rebuilt the cars. We did all the yard work. We fixed the house. Mm. We, I mean, I learned to do everything. But I look at my, I, my, I don't think my dad's any less stressed now than he was when he was working. Mm. You know, and I, you know, they, they grew up in this era where you have to retire, you have to save all this money. And I'm, and I'm looking at myself and I'm like, God, I love what I do. Mm. Like, I can't ever see myself retiring. Maybe right. not working as much, but I don't consider it work. Right. Um, and like my dad doesn't understand what I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, but think about it. They grew up. You, yeah. you, you, you get with a company, you get benefits, which is, I don't, it's great. And you work with that company basically for the rest of your life. Right. Right. And, um, my dad's an engineer. He, he could fix anything in the world, literally anything. Um, and he just doesn't understand my entrepreneurial spirit and how I do that. And especially with health. And what I told him one day, I was like, dad, I, I said, you have to understand, like you can fix a car, you can fix a water heater. You, we can redo the whole house. I do the same thing with people. It's just mm -hmm. different. Right. But I choose to do it on my terms and build 
businesses and do those things, you know? So like I get jazzed for that. Like he gets jazzed to go out there and strip a car apart and put it back together. I'd rather shoot myself in the foot. Right. But it's just different. Mm. It's just a different way to think about it. And you're so right. It's, um, the, where we are now for you and I versus where our parents are, it's so different. Mm -hmm. It's really different. It's a very interesting world now in some sense. And to to sort of play off of that, um, one of the things that struck me when I started working with Brian is this whole kind of entrepreneurial belief system. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think when you're in and I've, I had, I would say employee oriented roles for a number of years in different pro Mm -hmm. jobs. And then, and then started to recognize my own business acumen and got into that. But I, I'm kind of curious now that you've gone through this and I ask this question is sometimes to different entrepreneurs. Do you, do you think everybody has an entrepreneurial spirit within them or at the end of the day, there really are people who sort of want to do that and others who shouldn't ever do that quick break here. And we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. The reconditioning process is powerful, it's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. ReconditioningHQ.com has released the R-Pro Series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. The first step is R1 Foundations, and it's recently been turbocharged with the injection of applied neurology. We are extremely excited about what this new capacity is going to do to your ability to solve problems and serve your client. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to reconditioninghq.com and take advantage of our free five hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. Do you let $100,000 walk out of your rehab business every year? If you're like most businesses, you do. Operating your business under a fix or release model drives your client revenue out the door. For less than $10 per day, Isofit's line of strength products can change your revolving door of lost revenue into a flourishing rehab prevention and performance training business. Call them at one 866 2 isofit I-S-O-P-H-I-T, and strengthen your rehab business bottom line today. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness and performance equipment with over 7,000 employees worldwide. Their expertise and capacity in this world are exceptional, with over 500 products that cater to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. But they want to do more than provide product. They want to help you thrive as a performance professional or business person. They are here to help. Whatever your problem might be, they are ready and willing to help you find solutions. Greg Lawler and his team at Matrix can be contacted at teamupwithmatrix.com. And believe me when I say this, they will make a difference in your success. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. That's a great question. I think some people want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't know what that true entrepreneurship is, right? Mm-hmm. And um Kenton, I forget his last name. Um, he he's doing some work with Brian and Carrie in their in an app. And he does some work with Pitbull, but he he explains it as like as an entrepreneur, like there's a pyramid. Think of a pyramid. An entrepreneur sits at the top of the pyramid and works with all those businesses underneath. Right? He he leads with vision. He lead, He's a he's a tactical type of person. But there are some people who need to be told 
what to do. And that's their strength set. Like I've, I've hired lots of people that way. Like mm-hmm. they can't think for themselves. Like you give them five tasks to do, they're done. They'll come to you and say, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Right. An entrepreneur will be like, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Right. I, there are that employee mindset, right. When I learned those, those different styles, like the entrepreneur, the investor, the solopreneur, the entrepreneur, I think a lot of, especially in the fitness world, entrepreneurs, they're really solopreneurs as I've, Mm -hmm. as as Brian has taught me where they, they're doing all the jobs, right? Mm -hmm. They're not really an entrepreneur until they take that next step to really grow their business and start hiring people and really start leading the business. Mm. Stop working in the business and start working on the business. That's where that entrepreneurship, I think, really starts to take place. But so many fitness professionals get stuck in that solopreneur because there's only so many hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And they haven't learned yet to let go of that hour-for-hour mentality and really start to grow that mm-hmm. way. And you know, COVID obviously has really pushed a lot of fit pros to try to be more entrepreneurial online, but they're trying to do what everyone else is doing as, as opposed to trying to disrupt their own industry and separate themselves based on what makes them great. Mm -hmm. Like what is their superpower that they can really work off of? What is their Mm -hmm. story that really resonates with them that resonates with a market, that market that will come to them if they just tell their story. Right. those, those lessons in entrepreneurship to me were huge. Um, and it's really what has, it's, and by the, by the way, that's what really brought me to Kathy and Matt. When I saw what they were doing, I was like, you guys are sitting on the next evolution of fitness mm-hmm. and personal training, and it needs to happen now. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I was so definitive in how I thought about it. And, um, I, I know you've, you, you're doing stuff with them too. It's, it, that to me is disruption, mm-hmm. right? That to me is, okay, people are going to be mad at you for a year, but you're going to show them that we, we have missed the boat in some aspects of health and fitness. Mm-hmm. And all we're going to do is not say you what, you, what everyone's done wrong in the business like we've been taught, we've been taught to train below the chin, right? We're, gonna, we're basically telling the world Listen, someone's got to sit in the car to drive it. You can't just fix the car every time. You got to tell the driver to start driving correctly. And that, that start now we start now entrepreneurship starts happening, right? Now you sit at the top and now you lead all these people to do those good things for you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other thing that's, you know, I want to unpack some of that uh, too, but um, going back to the entrepreneurship piece, I think one of the things that people don't always recognize too is in each of those steps, there's certain acumen, constraints that that you you have to inform yourself of and so a a lot of times the solopreneurs will take the step to be call it an entrepreneur but they don't really have human capital management skills yeah and they don't have any idea how to you know to delegate and to provide direction and systematize etc and so then they start trying to learn this on the fly while they're managing people and it's a big schmozzle you know in some sense and then they get frustrated because their business didn't succeed or Mm -hmm. things didn't go very well and I, i guess you know it's this recognition point that each time you want to make these moves you have to up 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 um what's the word i don't like the word scale but up up knowledge yourself in order Mm -hmm. to be able to to deliver in those in that framework um in that space would Mm -hmm. be the same thing as an investor you know you want to invest but there's a lot of things to learn about investing when you do it right Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot. There's uh, when you look at the investor, it's like if you're a true investor mindset, like you're a numbers person, right? Mm -hmm. Like all your like analytics drives everything for you. Like you don't have the vision, but you can sit there and tell the entrepreneur. You, that's a great idea, but we financially can't do that, right? Like mm -hmm. they're, I, they, they work so well hand in hand. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, when you look at that human capital and the solopreneur, you know, the, the solopreneurs have been sucked into this, this mindset because of marketing that they can, be, they can be super successful in a month, make six, five, six figures in a launch, et cetera. And the, the, the odds of that happening is like winning the lottery, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. so um, unknown. And they just beat themselves up and they just keep trying to do that. When, and in fact, as Brian has taught me so well, and it's just proven time after time with our businesses, is it takes time, right? Business growth, business mm -hmm. success just takes time. If we just stop working as hard as we think we need to and spend our time in the, the three to five things that we need to do to grow our business, you'll get there 10 times faster and so much healthier mm -hmm. along the way. And then what I really, I know I fail that because the venture, the venture people I work with work on a little different avenue is that even in my business, I didn't systematize it very well. Mm. You know, I didn't spend the time writing a systems manual. Not even when, when we say manual, systems like I can't write a 200 page manual. It's not, it's a few pages, right? Like to disarm that alarm of this overwhelm because we've never done it. I think solopreneurs really need to have a mentor to sit with them and say, listen, take you 20 minutes. Let's just, let's just sit and do it. It's not that hard, mm -hmm. but let's take one hour a week and let's start systematizing your business. Like mm -hmm. for sales for a solopreneur. Like they think no one can sell their stuff. That's not true, right? Because you're, you're selling it because you're coaching someone now. Well, that's not sales. Sales is leading them to, to, to um, purchase from you, not coach them through the process. You should be able to teach someone to do that for you. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I, the solopreneur world, like once they get it and they understand that what's holding them back, th then that entrepreneurship just really starts taking full for, flight for them right off mm -hmm. the bat. Yeah, I wanted to talk for a moment too, because we keep talking about Brian and Carrie, and both of us have been sort of influenced by them. And to the listener, some people may not know who they are. Actually, I've interviewed Brian and Carrie back very early in the podcast journey. Um, and there are two Canadians. Uh, Brian lived in the States for a long time too, built a, a lot of businesses in athlete training and preparation for a long time. And Carrie was a personal trainer and then got into both of them started to really get into the mindset education space. And that's how you and I first yes. encountered them. Mm -hmm. um, and both of us have gone through a, a mindset journey with them and it's been quite significant in terms of how it's reoriented us in our lives. You know, for the listener, what is it that, what were some of the key things that you learned about in that journey <sighs> about, that, that have served you as you've moved forward in life now that you, you could offer to the listener as they're listening? Oh, my gosh. Scotty, there's so many. Yeah, I know. It's true. Um, uh, the first one that comes to the top of my head, which was so big for me, um, was the lesson of object referred versus self-referral. Mm -hmm. and, and for the, for the listeners, what, what I mean by that is so many of us grow up looking for external validation from people from things, uh, cars, the letters after our name as a professional, right? Mm -hmm. The money in our bank account. And 
our daily happiness is driven whether we get that or not from someone. And that was me. You know, I grew up, um, obviously I told you with the dad that didn't, you know, talk as much. So for me to really get approval, I had to do a lot of work around the house and stuff. Right. So I just learned that early on. I, I work hard, get approval. Great. Well, in business, that's really not how it works. Right now, when you start running your own business, it's definitely not going to work that way. So when I learned that, it, that was a monkey off my back, man. I mean, it really, like, it was like instant. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. And to how to learn to be self-referred for someone who, for, for those of you that work hard and do things, as long as you can be satisfied with your effort of the day based on how you feel, et cetera, you have to be good with that. Like mm. you have to start letting those type of things go. Um, that was a huge one for me. Um, mm. Another one was um, understanding my ego. <laughs> and how bad it was and what that meant. So, you know, Brian and Carrie do a great job of, of teaching you how to understand your emotional status based on your ego, your ego being whether you're um, like your angry art, whether you overthink, whether you're um, uh, it's just so many things, right? Sad. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, you learned that, where you started to where you ended usually had a crescendo event. And if you could stop that event based on your ego traits or these people that you started naming, you could really intervene that stimulus and really stop yourself from getting in that hole. Mm. And that was, I was, that was a big one for me too. Um, mm. Because I was definitely a class. And by the way, it always started with that object referred response though. Mm. Like for me, that always, they, all of them tied together. Um, yeah. getting into that moment. But, but I guess the last one, and it's one of their, you know, four main things that they teach is understanding what you're saying to yourself mm. at all times and um, being able to articulate that, but to take the, the negative things that you've had, we've had in our life, the really hard things, the really emotional events that really tag our brain um, that can quote unquote trigger us into areas how you turn that into a positive thing, like how, how that, how you can be so self-aware and so open to such a bad event in your life and talk about it. Like it was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. God, that's priceless. Mm. That's, I can do that. Like, you know, as a single guy, like I find that the hardest thing for people, females to understand mm. wow. just because it's not a normal thing. But when you go through their process, like you, you can really get to the nitty gritty of your life mm -hmm. and, and be open and feel safe to talk about it. Um, well, that, that's interesting. That leads me to sort of a question of, uh, for you on your, um, what you went through with your, the end of your marriage and stuff. But uh, on my end, one of the things that was big for me, which leads into that is this understanding of you own your own shit, so to speak. Yes. You, you are the one who creates the drama around you. Mm -hmm. The, you're the one whose interpretation of somebody else's reaction is the, your own story yes. coming to the ta table. And instead of always interpreting based on that lens, mm -hmm. settle down, breathe, you know, stop, mm -hmm. stop making a mountain out of a molehill, so to speak. And I'm kind of curious when you go back at, uh, with your relationship and some of the challenges you had, how, how do you now look back at your ownership of your marital failure versus what you would have looked at maybe while you were in it? Oh yeah. Great point. 
to, to play off what you just said, um, one of those other moments is when Carrie Campbell taught me that I'm responsible for how I react, not mm-hmm. the other person. Mm-hmm. And when we look at relationships, whether it's partner or employee, et cetera, and we react out, like we get angry, et cetera, we scream, <laughs> that is on us, okay? And it's not their fault. It's my fault that I reacted that way. And the way, the way I explain it to people is I'm like, okay, if you went on a two-week vacation to the beach and you came back and that person spoke to you that way, would you react that way? Probably not. You'd probably handle it a lot better because we would be what Brian and Carrie call a free nature state. And it was, <laughs> I learned that way after the fact my marriage was over, which is sad, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's a big moment. It's, and it, by the way, it serves me in my relationship with her now, which is really healthy. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't, we don't react back and forth or I don't, as, as Carrie would say, I don't, I don't go into, I don't dive into her bound nature dance or, or et cetera. I've really mm-hmm. learned to own my space. And when I'm in that space, I know not to, I know to deal with my shit and, and not, and not um, deal, get into something else with someone else. Yeah. Like, that's been one of the biggest ones. Yeah. That's one of the biggest ones for me because I'm, I've always had this problem about being always thinking I'm responsible for somebody else's state of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when I would run into an athlete who maybe is in a shitty mood yeah. in the gym or run into my, you know, my wife, Jamie, who, you know, and yeah. she's in a bad state of mind. And my immediate conversation is what did I do? You know, mm-hmm. and having that recognition that it's not what I did. They've got their own stuff yep. and I have my own stuff mm-hmm. and I got to own that stuff. So yeah, it's, that was a cool one. Yeah, it's just that um, when people say they're empathetic, like true empathy is to sit and say, what is the other person going through that I have no idea? Right. Right. That was big for me. I was like, oh, that's, that's empathy. Mm-hmm. Right. That allows me to sit back and say, keep it coming. Give it to me. Something else is going on for you. It's hard. It's hard and because especially when it's a painful experience, but when we can sit back and really take that in and, and really, and really work ourselves through it, even if it's hard, we'll get through it 10 times faster, which is mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm going to read you your, your thing now, which is your June 6, Gemini 6. Mm-hmm. So your purpose is to be able to maintain your truth and still play many roles, enjoying life and experiencing freedom because your moral boundaries are well-defined. The mm-hmm. man who listens to reason is last. Reason enslaves all the all whose minds are not strong enough to master her, George Bernard Shaw. The combination has a power to master the mind with ease. Venus gives them a strong spiritual cord, a toughness or ability to concentrate, an innate wisdom that helps them get <clears throat> to the meaning of things. Those with Mercury-Venus energy may feel a strong calling to serve the people and will have the ability to inspire them. Sakuro, June 6, the man who led Indonesia to independence, spent a lifetime trying to unify diverse peoples under a single nation language and culture i am a man of um of the people i must see them listen to them rub against them i'm happiest when i'm among them they are the bread of life for me i feed off the masses the gemini six must remember to listen to his own calling when the gemini six does what he loves his feelings inspiration and healing powers emerge that is me to a T, buddy. I mean, holy... I, you know what's funny? I didn't get into astrology until Brian and Carrie, because Carrie's really, you know, she talks a little bit about it. So then I started exploring it. I'm like, holy mackerel. Some of that stuff is so spot on. Yeah. 
it is well, I, when I read them, theirs, theirs, theirs are crazy. And mine, well, the reason why I bought this book, which I've told the story on the podcast a few times, but uh-huh. I used to have this saying taped to my desktop way back in the day, which is what uh, Ted Kennedy said at Bobby Kennedy's funeral, Bobby Kennedy's favorite saying, some men see things as they are and say, why I dream things that never were and say, why not? So right. this was always on my desktop. So for about 10 years. And then one day I'm in New York after my second divorce and I pick up this book and I start reading and I read Sagittarius three tells me what my purpose is. And I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. And the saying in there was some men see things as no way. Say, well, yeah. Yeah. And I'm wow. like, oh, I'm buying the book. That's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, so I was go just going to say that's, Reading, hearing that, that's why I've, I'm so connected to the partner stuff that Brian and I do for fit pros and entrepreneurs and coaches and why I was so just over the top with Matt and Kathy, like this must go now because mm-hmm. it just, because I just live both so passionately every day and I just never want anyone to have to go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, well, I think you said it earlier, which I thought was really poignant, and I, and I, and I, it comes back to, I think the the journey to a degree in life is discovering really who you are, and then f- making sure that what who you are is what what you do in essence that you 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 connect with those two things and i think one of the weaknesses of our sociological constraints is that going back to that generational thing was you know we got fed the the stuff that our parents got fed which was go to school get a job get you know get responsible buy a house have kids all this kind of stuff and then you kind of come out of that and you recognize holy geez i haven't figured out who i am yet at all you know Mm -hmm. and and I think that generation, to some degree, never even rec- never even realized that was possible. Mm-hmm. Like when I talk to my mom, you know, she she doesn't have, I don't think, a recognition of who she is in spirit, and so mm-hmm. she she outsources that to whether it's her religion or to you know other other things. Yeah. But um, I think our generation has been struggling a lot with trying to figure out you know who we actually are because we don't have those constraints that are that generation had, but we also have, you know, the belts and braces have been taken off, but we also don't know how to figure it out. So now we're, yeah. we're doing it. You know? Yeah. Don't you think that the figuring out part has a lot to do with the stories that have been given to us and we struggle against the story versus mm-hmm. the freedom to be what we want to be. And we have <clears throat> with the advent, the internet and all this information. And we've, and I've heard Carrie say, like we had the, the, the age of information, for so long with the internet, but now everyone wants the implementation age, but there's such a struggle between that story, understanding how to release from the story. It doesn't go away, but to release from it, understand it, become stronger from it, and now become the true version of you. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's mm-hmm. the, that's the, that's the beauty that I, the, a, of being able to do that, but it's also the struggle, right? Yeah. 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 It definitely is. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it, you, you hit it before too, even in, in our industry, you know, as you were growing up, uh, you know, and you see it all the time. It's, you, you got to get the letters, you got to get the masters, you got to get the degree, you got to get the PhD, you got to go. And it's become even more fervent in the industry. Like I, I feel badly for young 
SNC professionals today because it's almost like you can't get a job uh, at a university or 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 the pro team unless you got at least a master's or, or a PhD. And so they're ed- they're up educating themselves and spending mm-hmm. yards and yards of money on all this education, and most of the time not spending time on actually their soft skills and and becoming better communicators and better you know uh, in- internal beings. And then they run into this wall of well it doesn't pay very much and you know, I can't make a living. And so now you're stuck with, you know, I've got all this education and I spent all this time, but I can't make a living and I'm too overqualified in some sense, you know? Oh yeah. You know what? It's fun. Um, you may be able to speak well on this, but my, um, my nephew is going to college to be a physical therapist. And am I, I'm just shaking. I was like shaking my head a little bit. Because, you know, I mean, because I know Jamie was a physical therapist, correct? Am I, well, we're both athletic yeah, therapists. Okay, right. therapist. Yeah, So um, I was just, I was in my head, I'm like college, then physical therapy school. I'm thinking, and then when you get out, like, I know how much you make. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I know if you want to be a doctor of physical therapy, you only make a little bit more. And then I know what I did for physical therapists when I made them cash-based, how much they made. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, to, to your point, it's, this overeducation of we think what's good, but when we get into the real world and we, as we start out young, it's, we have a job, but then as we get older and we want to have a family, we want some financial freedom. We, it's, it's with the way the world is, it's really hard. You know, pe- mm-hmm. people here where I live, Scotty, some of the guys that I've hired drive an hour and a half to two hours away to come into the city to work just mm-hmm. so they can afford to live in, in a bigger home. Right. And have and have family and just be able to live more feasibly. It's yeah. um, it's really diff- It can be really difficult. Yeah, I was blown away when I lived uh, down in the New York region when uh-huh. I was working for the Rangers, and you know they were talking about people's average commute was an hour and a half, and I'm like, you're spending, and I and I did it. You know, I ended up I calculated one point I spent 26 days a year in my car. Oh, yeah. it was like holy cow! You know, this is craziness. Well, but I, but, I mean, but, I did. I mean, I, yeah. used, I mean, for me, I would go in early, early to beat traffic. Mm. It, it's an hour and a half, it would be an hour and a half home religiously after three. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you just became something you accepted. Mm. But I would purposely go in early or go work somewhere to beat the traffic just to not sit in my car. Yeah. <laughs> huh? And I, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. You yeah. know what I mean? So, um, yeah. It's crazy because it's back. It's back to normal now, and uh, it's it is a lot. It's a long time, and yeah. then if you want to go twenty minutes quicker, so you're an hour and ten. Now you got to spend to pay on the toll roads, right? So yeah. now you're now expend your expenditure goes up even more. So all your listeners, some of the toll roads here to get into DC could be up to eighty four dollars a ride one way. Wow! Wow! Uh-huh. That's crazy! It's crazy! Like they're they're um they 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 changed constantly based on the amount of traffic so you don't it, it, it's it just changes daily <laughs> uh-huh <laughs> i'm not lying wow wow Isn't that crazy? crazy yeah that is i, crazy. I would not okay. I'd never take those roads but oh my gosh no, not moving down there then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's uh what, what has the pandemic taught you you know what it taught me that we pre-pandemic if we wanted to change our job we said we couldn't because I need work, I need X, or so, uh, or I couldn't do it fast enough. I, I literally, I dropped everything. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, um, I was still, I was still consulting a lot, personal training for health, for doctors, et cetera. And when the pandemic hit and I was just like, Brian and I chatted like that next day and I was like, I'm all in. And I've, we are, we're working on our next two businesses already for next year. Um, we built three this year, um, or two, and I built one with Matt and Kathy. Uh, it's, it's, I can't, I am, I feel blessed and unbelievably because of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, I got to spend more time with my kids. Um, now I happen to have the mindset where I wasn't freaking out about it because mm-hmm. I had a plan about it, but it just shows me that we are as people, we're more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. If right. we would just give us, give ourselves the chance mm-hmm. on the second, on the flip side, I would also say it taught a lot of people that the shit that they're saying in their head, they finally had to listen to. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I hope that because of the pandemic and, you know, with it's something like a hundred percent of uh, mental health cases for children have gone up during the pandemic. Um, I hope that this mental, the, the emotional and mental side of our health has really started to come to the forefront now because of it. And I think that's a healthy thing, mm-hmm. especially for the male aspect, because we've been taught to push it down so much but that people are starting to pay more attention to it. And it's not something we want to hide. Right. So tell the listener, you know, like with this business venture that you're doing with Brian and Carrie around the Uh founders, like what is, what is the mission of, of that program and process and how Uh, can it potentially help people who are listening to the podcast? Our, our, what we want is we want anyone that has ever said to themselves, I want to, help someone, coach someone, take what I have inherently that people come to me for free all the time and I give it to them and they want to build a business around it, we'll build it for them. It's not hard, right? But we've just never had people that are willing to help me start from ground zero to build. Hmm. And if you set it up correctly, and it's not hard to set up correctly, it's, it's actually way easier than anyone would ever think. Um, and, and because of the pandemic, we did get a lot of fit pros and nutritionists and those type of people, but it can be for anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, we've have, we have people from zero income that come in at half a million to people with seven figures. And we've been able to meet them where they are and scale them appropriately. We're actually getting a lot of gym owners now in to help them fix their businesses out with that as well. But mm-hmm. I think the most, what, what happens in, in our, in the, in that process is what I tell everyone is we actually coach you first. So yeah, we're going to build your business, but your business isn't the issue. You're you're like, we talked about in the very beginning, those limiting beliefs that you carry with you is why you can't build the business. You think you deserve because you Mm. do deserve it, but let's get to those limiting beliefs and let's change them. And then watch all that happen. So, you know, the, how we've structured it, yeah, it's business. And we, we do teach you to build the business. But it is as much the mindset curriculum as it is business hand in hand yeah. as we do that together. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the powerful things about you guys and what you're doing and uh, is, is just this recognition that most of the time the, the constraints that that are holding you back from your success are your internal constraints that you've yeah. created for yourself through your own stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 To become happier with yourself. Like we talked about, you know, that internal validation is, 
is so important. You know, we, we taught, we opened up with that retreat that I just came back with, with all those partners there. And, um, there wasn't one, like we did year plans and we did 90 day, but that all got to after we worked on the stuff that they were dealing with stuff that people never had even talked about in their life. Mm. And it was, you know, it's, it's, it's hard in a way, but, but once you can get, understand that you're in a safe environment around people who are also doing that, it allows you to really come forth and get that stuff to the forefront of your conscious to be able to deal with it. Um, it's some, it's just the most, some of the most amazing stuff I've ever seen um, in my life. And it's not it, what people need to understand. It's not that they're psychotherapists or therapists or anything there. It's you're just talking mm-hmm. like you're just finally talking about it for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. a big thing for people. What was, what was one of, one of, or your biggest story that held you back for a long time before you discovered it and dealt with it? You know, you know, being a giver myself, Scotty, um, I was always giving because I wanted to feel loved. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, I had a mom who had me at 18. Um, and, you know, my dad was young, 23, traveled a lot. And um, I was always searching and wanting and needed to be loved more. Right. Mm-hmm. So I did that in my relationships. Mm-hmm. I did that in business. Mm-hmm. And the pain of abandonment is so hard for me that it took some hard stuff in my life for me to, for that to come forward. You know, Mm. I always tell this story, Scotty, of, um, in this journey of learning myself, I I had this vivid vision of me in this hallway and on the out on the, on the sides of the hallway are just doors. And as I walk down the doors and I have my arms outstretched, I can feel all those doors shaking with stories, right? Stories that I've dealt with that I've, they're there and shaking. And I get to the end of that hallway and there's always been a stairwell down. And I always thought of the stairwell down as I had climbed up it and reached, you know, this higher place. Right. But no, as I was having some more, you know, events happen and we, we start, we get dig deeper into our life. I realized that if I went down the stairs, there was this huge, like um, medieval door, you know, that like a chain and I opened it and there's this little boy in the back in the corner in the shadows chained huddled himself just wanting to be loved. And that's really my, was a big, huge breakthrough for me was to understand that I, I don't need the, the, uh, the external validation of someone to love me. I have to love myself. And Mm. when I could do that, my belief system in myself drastically changed Mm. for what I, what I wanted to do and who I could be or knew who I knew I could be, you know, like I, I, I tell some people that, um, you know, a lot of people, they'll think of the wanting to be a professional athlete and they'll dream about it or they'll want to be a rock star and, and dream about it. But we all have things inside that we want to be today that we can actually be. Why can't we be them? Hmm. Who said we can't? Who said we couldn't? You know, and um, I grew, you know, I'm, I'm highly dyslexic. A lot of people didn't know that. And I was told I couldn't write. Well, I have... 20 people asking me to do write copy and all this stuff that you're really good at, but someone gave you some dumb story that you just can't achieve. And so what if you're not perfect? No one's perfect. As long as you love to do what you want to do and you can do it with a verve and an enlightenment and a magnetism that makes you, you, no one can stand in your way. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. It just doesn't matter. 
Yeah, I think that's the differentiator between the healthy obsessive and the unhealthy obsessive is this recognition of the true spirit of who you are. I think the the unhealthy obsessive is somebody who's, to your point earlier, object referred has become obsessed with trying to get these validating strategies that socio the story of society is sort of provided for them rather than actually recognizing who they are and what it is that really what you know excites them in, internally in their own self and then becoming obsessed with that mm-hmm. in some sense you yeah know. And, you know entrepreneurs i think uh, this is just from experience they all think that they're building this business and what they're building today is it like, like if you look at Facebook, well, Facebook isn't today what it was when they first started, right? We, we think it's the end-all, be-all. It's just version one. You're mm-hmm. going to grow. It's going to change. It's not going to mm-hmm. be perfect. It's uh, good is good enough. That's the way I look mm-hmm. at things now. Mm-hmm. It's good is good enough. Yeah, that's one, that's one of my pieces of advice to younger people is what you're doing now is not what you're going to be doing in two years from now, let alone five. So mm-hmm. stop obsessing about, you know, <laughs> the trying to keep it or make it all perfect because yeah. it's, you know, it's going to keep changing. Mm-hmm. That was if a, you, something I had to let go of the venture world. Everything yeah. had to be perfect with maximal financial attachment to it. And it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. To, to close out this uh, beautiful conversation, what, you know, if you could go back and chat with the, the guy who was just finishing his baseball career and starting his professional career, what advice would you give him today? Work on yourself first. Hmm. Find someone, find a mentor that has, has been where you are, knows how you feel, and can get and has gotten out. You know, it's that man in the whole story Brian Grasso told me so long ago that I tell so many times, you know, you know, you, you fall into this, we all get into depressive emotions or anxious moments and we get into this hole and we can't get out. And we're always looking for someone out of this hole to walk by and throw us a solution, a vision board, a gratitude journal or something until someone jumps in the hole with you and puts their hand on their shoulder and says, Scotty, Listen, I know how you feel. I've been there. But listen, I know we can get out. You know? That was so powerful for me. And I mm-hmm. wish that I had I searched for that person. And the funny thing is, Scott, it was always me. Mm-hmm. I was always the person that get myself out of that hole. It's mm-hmm. Just someone had to teach me how to do it. And that's all yeah. we need. Well, buddy, it's beautiful. Could as usual, you could probably talk for hours, but uh, it's good to connect with you and good so to hear great. your story and learn learn all about you now. I feel like I know you that much better now, which is beautiful. I appreciate you, bro. Appreciate you having yeah. me on. Yeah, thank you very much. All for right, your time. bro. Yeah, Take care, my friend. Too. All right, yeah. bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.